Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. On this episode, I am joined by Chef Evan Hennessy. He's the chef owner, founder of The Stages at One Washington in New Hampshire, and kind of just outside of Dover, New Hampshire, is where they're located. And if you're unfamiliar with the restaurant, it's a pretty unique concept. It was one of the first to kind of explore this progressive New England cuisine style that has popped up in the so many places now that you can find in the Boston area, which Boston isn't too, too far away from where Evan and his restaurant are up in Dover. You know, it's just something unique. You wouldn't expect to find, you know, this restaurant anywhere in New Hampshire, really. You know, New Hampshire is not a food destination or anything like that. And that's where this restaurant winds up. And it's, you know, among the best restaurants in the area, in the New England area. And it's really cool to see and discover these restaurants, like stages that it's just in the middle of nowhere in your mind. Like you look at a map and that's not a place that you'd pick. There's not even a place you'd pick in New Hampshire that you would think like this restaurant's there. And then you find it. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. And everything that they're doing, all the food is delicious and looks delicious. So it was really cool to you know be able to connect with Evan and for him taking some time out of his day to come on and chat about his career and how he wound up, you know, where he's at and why they opened the restaurant in you know Dover and what he's got going on and kind of how the restaurant has changed concepts within itself over a number of years uh, as things have evolved and as you know the pandemic came and went and next steps and what he kind of plans for the future too as well so you can follow him on instagram at evan hennessy uh, is his handle uh, there is no restaurant handle for stages so they do have the handle for the bar area the living room so that handle is at the living room nh but there is no dedicated restaurant stages handle. So those are the two to follow and you kind of get all your news. Evan posts a bunch about the restaurant too as well. So you'll get everything there from those two. But also follow us on Instagram, at Spoon Mob. We're on all the other social media. Uh, it's either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One, but mainly we just use the Instagram. That connects to the Facebook page. Don't really use Twitter or X. We put some stuff up on TikTok in advance of an episode coming out so you can get a little sneak preview there but you know we do some stuff on Reddit here or there just kind of depends on how the Reddit boards and community are acting in any given moment but that's kind of it you know mainly Instagram now you can check out the website though too as well spoonmom.com different profiles for all our guests contact information photos all that good stuff is up there links to every episode of the podcast that we've had you can go through individual pages or there's a master list up there too as well you can also write in questions, comments, feedback through the contact portal on the website or directly and shoot them to us. Email is spoonmob at yahoo.com. All our new episodes drop on Thursdays, uh, 1 a.m. Uh, Eastern time is when the episode releases. Hits the YouTube channel a week later. So if you use YouTube as your preferred podcast app method of consuming podcasts, that's just a week behind just trying to keep all the channels separate uh, just because of the metrics and all that stuff to try and make sense of all that stuff. We got a couple guest spot podcasts coming up too as well. So we'll be posting about those, but was able to go on a couple other podcasts and have some awesome conversations with some people that are super passionate and have some unique voices in the industry too as well. So be on the lookout for some posts about that, a little bit of extra content um, that we'll have for you guys where you can check out uh, somebody else's kind of style and and we kind of tell the story of how we got here and talk a little bit about life and kind of how life evolves and the podcasting industry too as well and all that good stuff. So those are really fun to do over the past week or so and uh, looking forward to those coming out. So keep an eye out for that. But 
Without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Evan Hennessy, the chef owner, founder of Stages at One Washington in Dover, New Hampshire. Thanks again for taking some time and coming on the podcast. I first kind of learned about what you were doing through Brian Baxter, who I think you guys maybe did like a collaboration dinner together within like the last year or so. I don't remember the exact date. Then kind of looked more into what you were doing and it's just really pretty unique concept up in New Hampshire, which is not known as like a food destination or anything like that. You know, not too far away from Boston, but you know, over the state line and everything, Dover, Portsmouth area. So it's pretty unique is kind of a trailblazing concept where nobody was really doing what you were doing, especially in that area. And I want to get into kind of how you founded the restaurant and where you're at now with it. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody you know, how did you kind of first get into culinary art and cooking? Like when did that interest first kind of come for you? Was it high school, just working odd jobs, family kind of working in restaurants and kind of followed that path or what was it? My journey started when I was about 19 years old. I went to the University of Kentucky right after high school. I actually went for a fine arts major. I wanted to be an animator for Disney. Uh, That didn't exactly work out the way that I wanted to. I played a little bit too much basketball and didn't go to as many classes as the university had asked me to go to. And after about a year and a half, they said, thanks for your time. You can stay home. I didn't go back to to, the UK. My family's from Kentucky. That's kind of an interest of or a piece of note there that the reason I went to the school to start is simply because that's where my family comes from. I have several family members that have gone to UK, uh, and I've always been interested in art. Uh, You can actually see it through my food and cooking now. So I'm actually able to put these two things together. So when I came back from uh, Kentucky, I needed a job. And this was back in the the day when you didn't look on the internet that you looked in the newspaper. And so I found a job as a prep cook and a dishwasher at a uh, fish fry place here called Newix in, in Dover. I oddly enough, like really liked it. Granted, I was scrubbing chowder pots and things of that sort, but I learned to fillet fish. Uh, I learned how the line works, how the kitchen works. And then I started literally as a dishwasher and prep cook and then moved my way up the line. Well, I always looked at the next guy in line and said, I want to do that job. I want to do that job. And I want to do that job. And I moved my way all the way through. A couple of years of doing that. And then I bounced around to a couple of the restaurants and eventually I decided that I wanted to make it a career, not a job. So I went to, uh, went to culinary school and I was about five or six years into, uh, into cooking. And I really, really liked it. But the difference is that I wanted to get more into it. I want, I'd like, I was hungry for knowledge and hungry for experience. Uh, and that's why I decided to go to school for it and, and change from just sort of casual, mediocre food into well-crafted, higher concept things. So when you decide to go to culinary school at that point, did you always kind of want to stay local, you know, to where you were at? Or did you ever look into or consider any other culinary schools, you know, the big ones, the CIA, the ones in Chicago, whatnot? You know, I think maybe at that time, FCI was still around or whatever before they kind of all merged and, and whatnot. But did you have a reason why you chose, I think it was Le Cordon Bleu, the Atlantic Culinary Academy? Yeah, actually, there was a really good reason. I mean, I did look at the other schools, but the biggest reason that I stayed here is that I have an older son who's 26 years old. And so that leaving the area for the duration of school um, was not really a choice for me. So that it gave me the opportunity to not only continue to work while I was in school, go to school, and also be here uh, for my son. That on top of the fact that I like, I love this area. I love where I am. 
Um, I've worked in big cities. I've been to big cities. I am not a city kid at all. Um, I do not enjoy crossing the street with 200 of my closest friends. <laughs> um, I, I like where I live now. I like the proximity to the ocean, to the mountains, to everything here. I love the quiet. We have owls at night and that's what, what I listen to. So that's where I belong. With culinary school, what part of it was kind of your favorite that you thought was most beneficial to your career looking back on it? And was there a part that you wish that they had more substance in, whether it was like business management side of things, or was there anything in the curriculum that you're like, man, I wish they would have touched on this more when you kind of look back on your experience? For me, one of the biggest things that I learned was professionalism, how to go from just sort of a casual kitchen, you know, corporate style kitchen to being a professional. And I always think that there's a difference between a cook and a chef. And this is and not to say that you graduate as a chef, not, not at all, but you definitely learn the bits and pieces of what it takes to become a professional cook. And that to me was a huge thing. Um, I was able to really let that stand out uh, other than the fact that I definitely already had a talent for cooking. I really enjoyed it. And all of that came through. And I was able to work with a lot of the chefs and instructors kind of on the side. And I was able to learn as much as I could from them as possible. And I always think is that, you know, that they hand you a book and that's great. And that's the stuff that you have to use to pass a test. But where the real knowledge is, is from all those chefs that have decades and decades of experience before you. And so that's the knowledge that I really, really wanted to soak up was that I wanted their experiences to be my experiences. So I asked them as many questions as I possibly could, took as many notes on their experiences, things that they did in the restaurants and whatnot. And then I sort of let that seep in to me. I gained that experience through them. That was huge for me. So if someone in your kitchen now came up to you at work one day and was like, hey, you know, Evan, I really want to be a professional chef one day. I want to open my own restaurant. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? It's not the easiest one to answer. I think the first thing that you need to look at for, for that cook is that you really need to decide why you want to go to school. And I don't just mean in the terms of like, oh, I want to be a chef. No, I mean, like, if you're going to go to school, use it. I mean, really use the education, you know, the cost of the education aside, there is a wealth of information there, but there's also a wealth of information uh, throughout the industry. And I feel that if you can put yourself in the right places, and that includes culinary school, then you can gain that knowledge one way or the other. The difference is that you have to find those places. Uh, culinary school is a little more condensed and focused, and you don't have the pressures of, say, service start you know starting at five o'clock or any of those things. Like you, you really are able to slow down, work on your knife skill, develop your knife skill, really ask the questions that you want to of these chefs that you're given the time to to do this. Where in a restaurant, there isn't always that opportunity to slow the world down and get the questions that you want answered, or even to ask them in the way that you feel comfortable asking them. I understand that, you know, when you're in the heat of prep moving towards service and whatnot, that it's not always the time to, you know, pull the chef aside and say, I got a couple of questions for you. Do you have a second? It's like, it's not always that opportunity um, or even after service or before or anything, you know, like that. So I think you really need to figure out what you want out of it and can it actually help you? What are your goals, career goals, short-term and long-term and can culinary school or does culinary school find a place in that? That's where I think that answer lies. So after you complete culinary school, what happens next? Because a lot of the stuff do extensive amount of research and not really much happens according to the internet from post-culinary school until you wind up becoming an executive chef over at the, the Dunaway, which we'll get to. So that time period in there, what kind of happens for you? With school, again, this is the whole part of like, use it. 
And so that when it came time towards the end of school for the students to choose their internship sites. Some people were like, I'm going to go on a cruise. I'm going to go. They use it as just like a travel opportunity, which is you know good for them. But I wanted a job. That's what I went after. And so I found a site that was in Portsmouth, New Hampshire called 43 Degrees North. They were at that point the, more, the most creative and cutting edge restaurant in this area. So I gravitated towards that. There was excellent technique. The chefs were coming from Texas and Colorado. They had uh, experience in Washington, D.C. So they had some good experience coming from around, around the country. And again, like I wanted that. And so that I went there, completed my internship a year and a half later, I was their chef. Um, and this was at the, the age of 25 years old. I became an executive chef for the first time. That was tricky. Did you think you were ready or were you ready? Yes and no. I was like, I think I let my excitement answer that question of, yes, I definitely am ready. I totally want this. But then behind that excitement was like, you know, layers of questions and anxiety and unsure and like, can I do it? And, you know, I just, I stepped up and said, you know, yes, I'm, I'm ready and I want this. But I found out very quickly, uh, not that I wasn't good enough for it, but I didn't have what I considered to be the depth of experience to really perform that job to the best of its ability, which is actually what led me to the Dunaway. I stepped back. Um, from being the chef at the at 43 North to being the sous chef, the opening sous chef at the Dunwin, so that I could gain the experience of how to open a restaurant. What was the biggest challenge, the biggest difficulty with being an executive chef for the first time? It's literally everything. You know, I mean, you, you get handed to you managing a kitchen, managing employees, food costs, labor costs. It's like, it's literally everything. Oh, and the menu, you get to create things. So it's just about every piece of the job is absolutely brand new. Every day was brand new. So I think at that younger age, you know, I'm, I'm fueled by excitement and adrenaline, just like, you know, yeah, this is awesome. I'm totally going to do this and everything's going to be is going to be great. But it is hard. It is really, really difficult to execute those things well. I was very lucky that the owner of the restaurant, who, who's a chef himself, was really good with guiding me through these different things that he would see issues, potential issues before they occurred. And we could talk them out so that a, we could avoid them. B, it helped me handle that situation. So he really helped me grow as an individual uh, and as a manager and as a chef in my own right to be able to really grow, I think, in that role. That I think without that guidance that I, I would have flopped fast, like really fast. So when you decide to kind of step back from the role, like you said, move to more of an executive sous chef position, you know, over at the Dunaway with moving over there, eventually I think you wind up becoming the executive chef there with that whole process. Did you think that you missed your chance to be an executive chef or did you know that you were going to get another opportunity in the back of your mind? Like, let me work on these things and I'll get another shot. Oh, I knew, I knew that I would have another shot. In fact, that was my goal is that I stepped back with the idea of gaining the experience, learning how to open a restaurant, but seeing somebody else make the hard choices that I wasn't directly responsible for. And then I could make that, then I can make that observation as to how would I have done this? If this were my choice directly, what would I have done? And then I can see the outcome of what their choice was and say, like, okay, I think that was a good idea or no, I disagree with that. And this is what I would have done. I was at 43 degrees North for uh, about three, three and a half years. So I, I did spend a good chunk of time being their chef there, which was really nice. And I created a lot of great dishes. It was a wonderful experience. I wanted to be back in that role, but I wasn't where I wanted to be yet. So after the Dunaway, because at some point you wind up like in New York and Chicago a little bit. So you're kind of doing some stages or, or popping up at these other restaurants. So was that a calculated thing after the Dunaway? 
you wanted to get this experience at these big city restaurants before moving to the next step or like what led to all of that? Yeah, it was great. And actually to go back to 43 North for a second, that that was, so the chef and owner there saw the potential that I had culinarily and realized very quickly that he nor the area of Portsmouth and Southern New England could provide for me what I needed to learn. And so he said, you got to go. And so that's where he said, find a restaurant that interests you. I will help get you there. And so I picked out Trio in Chicago and I'd never heard of Grant Ackett's at all. It had nothing to do with him whatsoever. I was mostly drawn to the creativeness. I was drawn to the way the the kitchen operated. I was drawn to the collective process of, of the chefs and the sous chefs and how they interacted with guests. They had a kitchen table, which is the first time I'd seen that. And then so that where the chefs serve the kitchen table rather. And I was, I was really drawn to those items. And so I said, I want to go there. And so he helped me get me there. And then I stayed. Trio is in the first floor of a hotel in in Evanston, uh, Illinois, or at least it was. It's not there anymore. (laughs) And so I lived in the hotel. I literally lived three full floors above the restaurant. So my commute to work was literally go down three flights of stairs. Barely. So people always ask me, it's like, oh, how was Chicago? What was it like to be there? It's like, I have no clue. I really like rarely saw the outside. <laughs> I worked as much and as often as I possibly could from minute one to minute last. That was such a great experience for me. Um, we can go back to, to that experience later, but that was my first, like, I need to get out of here. I need to experience more things. And luckily the chef there gave me that opportunity by kind of kicking the baby bird out of the nest and saying, you need to go experience Flash forward to the Dunaway, the same thing. Like I had really seen and experienced outside of New England culture and food. And so that I searched out these other restaurants that had different elements of what I wanted to gain, whether it was levels of professionalism, the way a kitchen executed, the brigade system, how a menu construct went together, how a menu flowed. There's all these different sort of elements that I wanted to gain as a chef in order to get to, I think, where I wanted to be. And so I picked out these different pieces. A lot of it was based on creativity. Per se, for example, was about execution of fine French food. That was the reason for going there. I wanted to learn how a kitchen of that level executed on a consistent basis. Because obviously consistency is a huge, it is literally the maker and breaker of every restaurant out there that you need to learn. And they are able to execute that and have executed that for, you know, a long time. And so I needed to learn that. Ariel, same thing, very creative, very different environment, more of a traditional New York kitchen, loud, noisy, multiple floors, you know, stuff everywhere, pastry kitchen in the basements, you know, two flights of stairs running down, you're prepping in the hallway, like there's that. Teresi, same thing. That was arguably the hardest kitchen I think I've ever worked in. Not necessarily because the food was so technically sound. Talk about how to make something great in a very small space with very small resources. So you, you learn, you know, ingenuity, uh, efficiency is huge. It's something I always talk about is efficiency, 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 efficiency. And you've got to, you know, really be on top of your game the entire day. One misstep and you're just, you're behind and it's so hard to get out of it. And so I learned a lot through all these different places. Yeah. So those that don't know me, you know, with Trio, that was Grant Agates. He was brought in to kind of take over that restaurant. The restaurant, falling on hard times is not the right word. It just kind of stagnated. And that's why he came in. And then that led to him opening his own place, Millennia and so forth and whatnot. So, and yeah, it was in Evansville, which is not anywhere near downtown Chicago either. He got a lot of good press and everything. Um, and I think he got nominated for some awards and stuff too when he was there. But with your experience at Per Se, you know, we've had a couple of people on that work there, varying degrees of different experiences. For some people, it was 
great. It was exactly what they needed for others. It was not at all what they expected. Just the kitchen environment, cohesiveness with kind of the different departments. If you're coming in the morning to do prep and and just kind of the militaristic vibe of kind of how it was set up. Was What was your experience? Was it great? Kind of not what you expected? Somewhere in between? Uh, it was somewhere in between, to be honest. My day started with the Comey's. I knew people that had worked at Per Se before I even set foot in there. And so that I was able to get a little bit of the insider idea of what goes on and mental prep for it. Yeah, definitely. So I actually kind of knew the layout of the kitchen before I even walked in the door. And so that really helped me. So my, my day would start with Comey's and prepping and everything. And then because of the people that I knew, one was the executive Sue, one of my best friends who actually was on the opening team. And between all of that, I was actually pulled from the Comey kitchen to work with the butcher. And so I got to spend some time um, with the butcher. And then I moved on to working Garmage, I kind of moved around the system a little bit quicker than I think a lot of other people. Most people will spend time in the Comey kitchen for months, if not at least a year before they get moved into the uh, the service kitchen and in, into the brigade. I was very fortunate that I kind of skipped a huge chunk of that line. And for me, so my experience is going to be different from anybody else's that was there. I got to do a lot of different things in a very small amount of time. I really got to see how the Comey kitchen works. Actually, I actually want to pause there because I want to go back. This is in 2011. So the way the per se operated then and it operates now is very different. And I know, I think on the plate, you don't necessarily see that, but behind the scenes, it's quite different. The people, the amount of uh, cooks in the kitchen is very different. The way that things are managed as far as like, let's create versus now more things are being pulled from a recipe database that they've had to streamline a lot of things because of the labor shortages and because of, I think, just an overall lack of talent in the industry at the moment. So back in 2011, I was very fortunate to work with some extremely talented people there. Jonathan Benno had just left. Uh, Eli Kaime was, was just moving into the CDC role. Uh, David Breeden, who is now the CDC at the French Laundry, was a sous chef there. Oh, Matt Orlando was one of the sous chefs. And I worked with him at Ariel. And he was on his way out to actually go become the CDC of Noma. Chung Chow, who is one of the other guys that I know, Corey Chow, who is uh, the most recent CDC. So you talk about like kind of an all-star lineup of cooks going through that kitchen that I was very fortunate that these are the guys that I got to work with. And so that every one of them, and I'm very thankful for this opportunity, really took me underneath their wing and showed me not only their job, but how things work. They answered my questions. So that whole scenario about like getting a culinary school education, I got that out of per se. I was able to, but a huge part was because I knew people walking into in that door. So if you're, you know, it's a cold call or you're right out of school or you know nobody, you're going to have a very different experience than what I had. Doing all these different stages or, or taking different short-term jobs, at these different restaurants to gain all the skills that you mentioned earlier in that process, knowing that you have kind of this idea to probably one day open your own restaurant. Do you look at those locations, you know, when you're in New York or when you're in, you know, Boston or Chicago or whatever and go, can I open a restaurant here? Would I want to open a restaurant here? Do you have that thought process? Cause just as a general, just person, that travels like the first time you land in a new city, you're like, could I live here? Like that's one of the first questions you ask yourself. And you usually can answer that within probably like four hours. Is that a process that, that goes through your mind too, as well, or a chef's mind, you know, when you're bouncing around? Yeah, definitely. And actually you, you just nailed the first question about before, do I, could I open a restaurant here? It is, do I want to live here? Could I be here? 
And I think that that is, in my opinion, is like, that's the first question you need to ask before you open a restaurant. I was like, do I actually want to be here? Because you can open a restaurant anywhere you want to, right? Like any chef could go anywhere and open a restaurant. The question is like, do you want to actually be there? Because you're going to be spending a lot of time there. And for me, it's like, I'm sorry, but I don't like Boston. <laughs> I know I'm from New England. I'm probably like, I'm going to get shot down for saying that out loud, but I am not a fan of Boston. I love the Red Sox. Grew up, you know, with the Red Sox and the Patriots, but I'm not a fan of Boston as a city. <laughs> that being said, like, you know, I didn't want to um, be in a city. I didn't want any, like New York is great. I love to to visit there. It's cool things to see, but like, don't want to live there. I hate the way you commute. I don't like public transit systems. I was like, I just don't like any of that. So that all goes before like wanting to open a restaurant there. Not to mention the fact of like the overall cost. I mean, millions of dollars to do these things. The, the competition level is so freaking high. And I don't know. I mean, and again, like, do I think I could? Absolutely. I absolutely think that I could walk into one of those cities, open a restaurant and do okay. Talk about life balance, gone. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on Cape Cod and spent you know a good amount of time in Boston for different events and stuff. You go up there, and I like the city. I'm a city person, but Boston has a very, very unique layout, and it is kind of rough if you don't know it because it's a lot of one way streets, especially in the North End area. You know that, and for people that don't know, like that whole area was created like they filled in a marsh way back in the day and built upon that and. You know, just read the Wikipedia history of, of the city and you'll kind of get an idea there's the molasses flood and all that stuff. But it's hard to navigate that city because it's not a standard grid layout. It's kind of this weird trapezoid that kind of jumps into a circle thing. It's very strange when you actually look at the map itself of, of how it's laid out and getting around can be quite challenging if you don't know what you're doing or, or haven't been there before or anything like that. So yeah, that I mean, that makes complete sense. Even with growing up in the area, I can totally understand that. After you kind of get done working at all these places, when do you decide that it's time to open a restaurant of your own? Like, when do you reach that point where you're like, I'm kind of done working for other people. I want to do my own thing. There was a bit of a buildup to that. And I think the biggest takeaway is that ever since culinary school, I'd always had the idea that I wanted my own restaurant. I, I wasn't completely sure what this was going to look like. I just knew at some point that I needed to be on my own in control of my own food. With the Dunaway, when I was there as the chef, the way that I actually moved on from there is that they sold the restaurant and everybody lost their jobs. And the way that I found this out is that I met the new owners. We were getting ready for lunch service. I was downstairs prepping and somebody I'd never met before walked down the kitchen stairs and I said, hi, you know, can I help you? The woman looked at me. She's like, oh my God, you don't know. And I stared back at her with these, you know, very serious eyes. And I was like, I don't know what exactly. And she's like, we just bought the restaurant. We're not opening today. So I put my knife down very calmly on the cutting board. I said, all right, I guess that's how that goes. Grabbed all my stuff, walked out, and I, I took it upon myself to get in touch with the remainder of the staff and tell them they didn't need to come into work that day because none of us had a job anymore. So my brother and I at that point became business partners and opened a private chef company that morphed into a catering company. The, the reason for the morph is we just took on more and more parties and got into weddings. And, and then after about two years of that, the idea of the restaurant came back into play. And we were doing enough business as a catering company that I needed a bigger kitchen. I needed more space. So I said, well, let's build both uh, in the same place at the same time. So I designed a kitchen, which is the Stages Kitchen, that could multitask, that you could run restaurant service, 
sort of on the front side of it. And then you could also prep catering and do things of that sort on the back decks. Not one person would bump into each other. It's a very efficiently laid out kitchen. So we opened stages in March of 2012. uh, And we were still catering a lot, doing weddings, you know, double booked weddings all the time. And we were trying to put forth this never be heard, never before heard concept of tasting menus, prefix, creative food, so on and so forth. And that got beyond exhausting, like to the point where it's like, I can't handle this anymore. I can't do all of this. And it was just burying me energy wise, like mentally, I was just like at the end, you know, and I I didn't know how I was going to be able to keep going. So I said, said to my brother, I said, um, we got to stop, you know, this, this is literally killing me to do both of these things. We were very fortunate that the catering end of things built up enough money that we were able to pay the loan of the place off early. So it kind of financially got us to a goal, which is great. And then, so then we did our last few gigs as a catering company, last few weddings and closed those doors. That was an incredible day. Some people are very sad when they close businesses. I was extremely happy. There was a huge weight off my shoulders. It was just, I felt like, you know, it felt like Atlas putting the globe down for, for, for once. And it was just, it was insane. I'm very thankful for it. But again, it, it got us to where we need to be financially for stages to thrive and live. Do you think you would have opened stages along the same timeline if that whole situation with the Dunaway didn't happen, where you know essentially you guys all got let go without being told that you got let go? I would say no, because uh, I don't think that I had, looking back at the time in my life, there, there wasn't a lot of like guidance or path. And I think like I knew I wanted a restaurant and I knew I wanted to be more creative, but I was just kind of drowning in the restaurant industry at that point, not really knowing what the direction that I would go in would be. And when, if, how I was ever going to have a restaurant, we did make one effort. My brother and I joined up with a couple other business folks to make an attempt to actually buy the restaurant and take it on ourselves. And that didn't go, they didn't want our offer. And so we just, I stayed as, you know, continuing on as the chef and everything. And then eventually the, the closure happened. But I, I don't know, man, that, that, that's, that's such a great question that every so often I look back and think of if that never happened, you might talk about a blessing and a curse, right? You know, because at some point it's like, damn, it sucked. I lost my job and I have to do go through all that stuff. But look where it got me, you know, and the whole everything happens for a reason. It's like, if that never happened, would I have opened stages in the way that it did, when it did, where it did, and would it become what it has today. I don't know. It's hard to look back at that. Where did the name come from for stages? Yeah, it's got a couple of different meanings behind it. One is that I always liked the idea of a restaurant equated to that of a ballet, that you know, it's this flawless, seamless, beautiful movement during service and everything is in its place and it's been practiced, it's been choreographed, it's been written, it's been done. And so when you get to service, it looks like a ballet. And that's what the guests experience. That very much puts us puts us on a stage. And I think that if you look at the concept or the construct of the restaurant, that you have our six seats in the kitchen and they are watching the kitchen perform, more or less. Again, a stage. And so then the other piece of that is that I never wanted to create this set and forget it style concept restaurant. Like it is always, always evolving, always changing in thought, in mind, in, you know, sometimes even physical form. And therefore it's always evolving in stages. So that's where I got the name. When you open like you mentioned, you're doing the catering stuff too at the time, but even when you just open the restaurant aspect of the business, you're doing something at that time that was pretty unheard of. Like it's 2012 and that might not seem like a long time to people, but it's a long time over the course of the ebbs and flows of the food industry and things that come into style and go out of style. And at that time, we were 
doing something that nobody else is really doing in the area. There's probably a couple places kind of doing it in Boston, but even then it's probably mostly French style with the tasting menu, but you're focusing on New England cuisine and New England ingredients. How did you kind of come up with that concept? Was it just stuff that you like to cook? Was it something that you saw a hole in the marketplace for where like nobody's doing this, but I think this could work? Like where did kind of that food menu concept idea come from? Yeah, it was literally all of that. As you said, there was a hole in the market. There was nothing near or around us really that was doing anything like that. And then on top of that, it was a combination of different things that I enjoy. Like I was like sitting in a sushi counter and watching the sushi chefs uh, prepare things. The missing piece to that is that you can't talk to them. You can't ask them any questions you know, about what they're doing, but you do see the kitchen. And then uh, again, going back to Trio, I really liked the idea that there was a table in the kitchen. Those guests were able to not just see what the kitchen was doing and how it worked, but then the chefs served that kitchen table. And so that they were able to ask them questions. And I was like, like who, who better to ask about food than the chefs and cooks themselves? And so I kind of put all those things together. And then there's one other element that, that I look at, and this is where the private chefing and private cooking thing came into mind. Is like, so when you have guests and people and friends over to your house, where does the party always end up? In the kitchen. Why not just have it there? And so that's why I brought this, the seats in the kitchen and had everybody right in front of us, kind of like a sushi counter, enjoying everything, being able to talk back and forth with the cooks and, and the chefs, kind of just put all these different ideas together. And then food-wise, it was it's an evolution of regurgitating things that I had seen and finally understanding and figuring out what my own voice was. And that took years to find that, really took years. Starting out, did people understand it? what you were doing or did that take some time for people to figure out like this isn't just some weird off concept that's never going to survive like what is this guy doing like did, did people get it or did that take time that was all of that i'm sure that there was a lot of people that said that there's no way this is going to last um and sometimes myself included to be honest with you but from there i think people they had seen tasting menus here and there you know sometimes you go to a uh, an a la carte restaurant and they'll have like a chef's tasting menu or like a chef's whim menu or something like that. Or they run on like on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, prefix menus are not unheard of. Every time you do a wine dinner or beer dinner or anything like that, it's a prefix style or sort of a tasting style. So that these, these menu concepts concepts are not far-fetched, but to operate a restaurant that is just that, that's the part that had, hadn't been done yet before. And there's an element that I didn't necessarily realize that I had to break through within that in order to really achieve, I think, well, like, well, again, like, well, like where we are. And it was a huge element of trust with the guests and, and ourselves, because the way that our menu works is you don't see it. I mean, yes, we have something uh, online and it's, you know, quoted as a sample because it might be different from when you walk in. It is a huge trust as a guest to walk into a restaurant, make no choices other than a few beverage choices and literally sit there and just be handed one plate of food after another up to, you know, nine, 10, 11 courses of things that are potentially quite unfamiliar to you. And it's not that we're using weird ingredients or, you know, stuff you initially haven't heard of. It's mostly about we're putting things together in a form you've never seen or haven't tasted before. And that that's where that level of trust is. And, you know, we're using very fresh products, you know, wild foods, things that are straight from the farm. We're doing all our own butchery. It's like it's definitely a difference from what a lot of restaurants around our area were doing. There's few, even to this day, that still do like their own butchery. The menu, like you touched on the sample menu online. I think people, because it's 
classified as New England progressive cuisine, people think most of that menu is going to be seafood. I mean, it's a sample menu, but there's only two things on there that are seafood. Yeah, it's funny. Some people are like, oh, it's a very seafood forward menu. I was like, is it? <laughs> there's only two things. So like, is it easy or is it difficult to navigate that assumption where if you get a first time guest or somebody that's you know not exactly familiar with what you're doing, they come in, they probably are mentally prepared. Like this is going to be a lot of seafood. Like that's cool. Like we love seafood. How do you kind of navigate that? Because there's one, the expectation that maybe somebody was really looking forward to a bunch of seafood or somebody maybe is so-so on seafood, but like they're going there with someone else and they want to have the experience. They're like, all right, like I'll try this. Like, how do you kind of navigate that assumption where just kind of your average diner is probably thinking we're going to have six to seven courses of seafood focused cuisine when that might not be the case, depending on the season. For me, it's being, we'll call it menu awareness so that we're not overloading the menu with one thing. It's not all meats or land animals, and it's not all fish or crustaceans or shellfish or anything like that. There were, I try to be very aware with menu concept as to how we build that. And it is kind of odd how you said, you know, like, oh, it's, you know, it's a very seafood forward menu is like, but it's not, you know, really it's like we do use a lot of products from the ocean, whether it's, you know, seaweeds, algaes, you know, oysters, you know, things of that. So, so sure that there are, there are elements of it, but it's not one plate after another of like, here's another, you know, filet fish. Here's a, here's a scallop, here's a shrimp. It's like, it's not that. And so, but I think for me, it's one thing for, so when a guest comes in, I have to assume that most of them have some kind of expectation or preconceived notion as to what they're getting into, whether they've had somebody, uh, a friend eat there, whether they've seen things online, pictures, Instagram, like whatever it is, they kind of build up this concept in their head. And so our job when they walk in the door is to basically create a new experience, regardless of what they've already thought. So we want them to feel extremely comfortable at home. We get them situated and comfortable in the living room, a couple of drinks, just let them relax for a little bit. So that way it's not this like quickly go to your table. Here's your first plate of food thing. Then again, you know, kind of the, like the idea of having guests over to your home. Like when you have friends over for dinner, you don't bring them right to the dinner table and serve, serve them their first plate of food within the first five minutes. So why would we? We want you to be comfortable. We want you to relax, enjoy your company for goodness sakes. <laughs> and then, then we start bringing you into that idea. We have a couple snacks that are good intros flavor-wise into what we're doing. We do this snack board, which we love to be able to kind of set the scene, if you will, as to the season that we're in. Right now, actually, again, we're going to play to the seafood thing because like, it kind of looks like a beach. Everything that's on there is all vegetable-based. So if we're to actually break down our cooking, it is actually more vegetable-based than anything else. We have elements of seaweed, lots of mushrooms. We have lamb on right now, and we have some, we have bluefin toro, so we have the tuna, we have oysters. And that's kind of the, the non-vegetable uh, components to it. Instead of breaking somebody's preconceived notion of what we may or may not be, we just do what we're really good at and make them feel as comfortable as possible while they're there. So that way, whatever they walked in with, today is fine. Tonight is an awesome time. So when you're constructing the menu, how often do you change it? Does it just kind of depend on the ingredients that you're using at the time? Is it more focused around kind of the four seasons where New England is probably one of the last places in America that actually has four seasons? I live in Columbus, Ohio, and we don't really have a spring. Like you pretty much go from winter to non-snow, but it's still cold. And then eventually it just heats up in the in the summer. So like, I would argue that we don't really have a spring here anymore. And when you get further out West, you know, I think it's kind of the same thing, but 
So is it kind of the four seasons component really dictates what you're doing? Or is it just kind of like I'm bored of this dish. I want to try and do something else. Like how do you kind of approach keeping some consistency with the menu for prep and ingredient sourcing and all that stuff, but also still challenging and pushing yourself and the rest of the kitchen team? The way that we look at it is that it's not four seasons in the year, it's 365. And so that we also are very aware that growing season to growing season, year to year, that nothing is the same. This year is an excellent example of that. We have had a stupid amount of rain here, which has thrown off so many things. We had a late cold snap. It killed a lot of the, the tree blossoms. So we have no peaches this year. There's no cherries this year. Things that we're used to having are just not occurring. We have an incredible uh, wild mushroom season this year. Peas were so late. Everything like corn is not good this year. Like everything is going at different times, you know, and, and things that we're used to say, we create a dish one year, we can't necessarily replicate that the next year because the, the the ingredients aren't growing or being picked at the same time. And so what changes our menu is literally that we move on a week-to-week basis on what is actually coming towards us. There's a farm in Loudoun, New Hampshire, Loudonshire, that they raise all of our land animals from us. We work with fishing co-ops out of uh, Portland, Maine, to bring in our fin fish and shellfish. And then there's an oyster farm in right on the Dover-Durham line, actually, that my wife also works at, that we get our oysters from. And so that when they're picking oysters, we have oysters on the menu. When we say bluefin is being caught during season coming out of uh, the Gulf of Maine, awesome that we've got that. When scallops are being harvested, then we have those. But when that season is over, then that dish is over. When animals are harvested from the farm and we bring in, you know, 30 ducks, we serve that duck dish. When we're out of duck, that's it. And you won't see it again for months and months and months, in fact, and probably until not next year. And one of the realities to get you into sort of the farm thing is that farm life is extremely difficult, as I'm sure you all know. And things go wrong that if there is uh, something goes wrong with like a hatching, that means that the next flock of ducks or geese isn't there. And so therefore, again, we wait. We don't have those. And so that, that's kind of what dictates, you know, the weather changes. Now we've got tons of mushrooms in the kitchen right now. And so we have a lot of those, but that, that's basically what it is. Uh, we try to hold the dish on the menu for as long as we can. And then when the ingredient changes and much in the, in the fashion of like kind of the domino effect that when you change one thing, sometimes it has the effect of like, we move an ingredient around and then this gets pulled from one dish. And then all of a sudden you've changed three or four dishes. So shortly after you open the restaurant, you wind up competing in a couple competitions or the main one being uh, you competed in a star chef's Vitamix challenge and you got pretty far and you got down to one of the handful of finalists in that. But with, like you said, all that stuff going on, open the restaurant, you got the catering stuff going on. Like it's just, just too busy, too hectic. Then you throw this competition on there probably too, as well, roughly around that time. What made you want to do it, participate in it? Like why? My wife always kind of nags at me for the fact that I like, I just enjoy like just beating myself up and just the, the more something can like be difficult, the more I enjoy it. And I think that that's a little bit of a little bit of that. And it's like, yeah, when everything is chaotic and hectic and super busy and very difficult, it's like, why not throw something else onto it? Like a competition, I guess in terms of that, like grew up playing sports and everything. I've always had uh, a competitive edge to myself. I also enjoy challenges. I love to challenge myself mentally and physically. I love wh- whether or not I win or complete or finish or whatever it is, isn't always necessarily the end goal. It, people will call it the process, but you know, I, like I enjoy the experience of competition. I really do. The outcome of winning or, you know, is awesome. But for me, 
I love the experience of it. The the Vitamix one, the Star Chefs one, you know, I signed up for that. I did, you know, the preliminary things, got into the finals and I won the competition. And I was actually so surprised that I actually won it. I was sitting there in the stands and they called my name and my my buddy was sitting next to me. He's like, nudge me. He's like, dude, you won. I was like, what? Like, I didn't think I had won at all. But like, I, like, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And for me, it's like, I found this interesting little niche that I like, I enjoy, like, I enjoy competition. Some people are like, nope, I won't go near it, you know? But for me, it's like, I like it. I like the challenges. And I, I guess a big thing for me too, is like, I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to be wrong. I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to fall because for me, it's like, I love going through that experience. I, I guess, you know, look back at the Dunaway is like, that was a huge drop. Like I get dropped off a cliff when that restaurant closed and here I am doing even better. And so for me, that was like, you go in, you experience these things and you build even more abilities. You build even more knowledge and more skills. And then when you do it again, you're even better. With that competition, was it like cook one dish and then kind of move to the next thing? Everybody's kind of cooking one dish based off a certain ingredient or a certain style or something? Uh, it wasn't an ingredient for the Vitamix one. It wasn't an ingredient. It was the use of the blender itself that you had to come up with the most inc- creative thing or things that you could do with using the the Vitamix. So I ended up using a probe thermometer and the toggle switch, the speed toggle on the blender is that I created a stabilized hot custard in the blender and that I stabilized it at about 151 degrees Fahrenheit, monitored that and just kept the custard going. I cooked it and stabilized it in the blender. And I had the entire judges panel standing around my table, like, what the hell are you doing? And they're watching the, their probe from my room, just moving the speed dial up and down to keep the, the temperature of the custard. So I don't break the eggs, don't scramble the eggs, but yet I've created a stabilized custard. And they were like, that's freaking insane. <laughs> then like a year later, after winning that competition, you get your first James Beard nomination for the best chef Northeast category, then a whole bunch of accolades come in after that. But when you start getting some of these accolades, I mean, you guys have gotten hottest new restaurant, in New Hampshire from New Hampshire magazine, hundred best restaurants in North America by the opinionated, uh, on dining uh, list. I think for like the last six years or something like that, you guys have been on there. A whole bunch of stuff kind of comes through when you start getting these awards to, or accolades too, as well, does it, change anything does it help move the needle at all for the restaurant itself is it better just to be way back kind of when we first started alex seidel and i always remember this because he was on the james beard list for years and years and years before he won and he said it was actually more beneficial to be nominated every year than to actually win the award because there are people that every year that this list comes out they make it a point to go back to that restaurant because it's on this list in their area or whatever. And he's like, so we would see this influx of business every year. And then once won the award, it's like, great, I won the award. But also now we kind of lost this little marketing thing that we had. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. Nobody else has ever really like had that same opinion. But, you know, for you in accolades, a lot of chefs, you know, they're not seeking awards. It's great to have and everything. Any of that move the needle in any direction for you guys or do anything? Yeah, I definitely agree with what he was saying is that when you're on that list, it's excellent because then people pay attention to you, you know? So, so that's one thing. So it keeps your name current and it keeps your name in the marketplace and people are aware of it. And so they have that list to, to reference. Yeah. Well, once you win it, you're off of it. And then you're kind of, you know, they move on and whoever is on it next. And, and, and again, I, like, I agree. It's that, that when you're on that year after year after year is that you're a multiple year nominated James Beard chef. And that in itself is excellent. To win is also excellent. But 
you know, you get to carry that with you wherever, wherever you go. So it's a wonderful thing to have. And I think that when you start getting the accolades, it definitely drives business to how much I would say small, small numbers, you know, and depending on what the accolade is, you, you'll see an instant effect of it, or sometimes it's a very slow trickle thing. You know, like we still get people that come to the restaurant because of the James Beard thing. And I was like, that was like 200 years ago. <laughs> but sure, you know, like, so, so it still works. It, like, it doesn't change anything that we do, you know, characteristically wise, you know, inside the restaurant, we just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, there's a reason we got on those lists in the first place is because we do what we do. And so, you know, altering to, to that, to, to me, doesn't make sense, but it definitely helps keeping your name out there, which is a huge, gigantic hurdle for, for restaurants is to, to remain relevant um, in the, in, in the marketplace. And I think that that's, that's great. You know, it's, it's always like, you know, you have good food, Awesome. You have good, you know, beverage service and whatnot. Awesome. But you also have to be able to stay in the public eye so that they constantly know you're there or else the next guy takes your spot. When the pandemic happens, COVID happens, how did you guys deal with it? How did you guys navigate it? Because you mentioned when you built the restaurant, you had it specifically laid out to have the catering operation. So I'm assuming that came into play for maybe doing some sort of takeout to go stuff or, or did you guys completely just shut down? And we're like, we'll pick this back up when everything's kind of settled. We did all of that. So when we were lit, I was on the phone with my my friend and we were watching it online, just restaurant after restaurant, you know, cities closing. And as soon as we saw Boston closed down, we we're like, that's it, it's over for us. And we were pretty darn sure that when we closed our doors, that that was it. We acted and reacted like that was it, it's gone. Now we have to figure out what else we know how to do. And I started looking at like teaching jobs, other things that I could do, you know, with my skill set. Because we didn't know what it was going to be at all. We didn't know if the restaurants were going to be able to uh, open back up. We didn't know when they were going to be able to open back up and when when and if they did what the scene would look like. And so we were closed for two and a half months. And you know, during this time, you're searching for other jobs. And again, nothing is going on because nobody else knows what's going on either. And so we started seeing a lot of restaurants morph into takeout and we're like, all right, well, let's see how this goes. You know, it's interesting. And my, my wife made a point. She's like, give it a go. You know, it's like the worst thing you do is just stop. And then you're not anywhere different from where you are right now. Thankful to her, you know, she had the, the great idea to do that. So we figured out an online uh, ordering system. We developed a menu, which was way more casual than what we were doing. It's more sort of bistro style food. And we started we, we started doing that. We just put like a pickup table right by our front door and we we prepped on and cooked on and ordered things online and very different world for, for a while. And uh, we did that for the same thing about two and a half months or so. And then they started to allow indoor dining again. And I, again, you watch the temperature of the industry, you watch what's going on. And I was like, I already closed these doors once. I don't want to do it again. We waited and kept doing the takeout thing until it looked like this is actually going to work. You know, restaurants are going to be able to open and stay open where the design of our kitchen really, really helped us. And actually our small size as well is that, so we have our six seats at our kitchen. We also have kind of a, if you call it an L, so the short leg of the, the L was our, it's where our pass is, where our food comes through. And so we turned that into another little deuce, just a small table off to the side. So in, that, in essence, we had eight seats because of all the spacing rules and everything I created and built multitude of like moving partitions, things hung from the roof that were, you know, fastened to the tables. It was like, oh, I got tired of building shit. <laughs> we took our our six seats and just spread them out just where we were. And then we actually introduced a second seating. So we were before just doing one seating uh, at 630. And now we were doing two seatings of 530 and eight o'clock. 
because of our small size, we could actually just move where we had people, block them off like we were required to do, do all the things, wear all the PPE and all that other stuff. You know, it felt like you were ordering cafeteria food again. With it was it was insane. We actually increased our seat count. In fact, we doubled it uh, during this whole thing. Where I have you know friends that have restaurants that are 60, 70, 80, 90 seats, and when they had the whole fifty percent capacity in the six foot spacing, you know they're they're looking at a at an eighty seat restaurant that with fifty percent capacity is like okay, so now you're at forty seats, but then with the six foot spacing, you're actually it's like thirty two seats. So your eighty seat restaurant is you now handicapped by you know over fifty percent. That's insane. I don't like, I just, I don't know. I don't know how they, they, they maintain that. I really don't. They bit a lot of dollars to try to push that and stay open. Whereas again, very fortunately, because of our small size and the way our layout was, is that we actually doubled our seating count. We went through the pandemic and came out thriving way better than we've actually been doing, which was sweet. It just, it just sucks that it took, it took a pandemic for us to realize that we should have done that in the first place. <laughs> During that time too, you competed again. You were on, I think, Chop like three or four different times. You won like three different times. Was that just something now that you had the time to do? You know, where if you were running a restaurant day in and day out, like maybe you could get away and do one of them, you know, because they film fairly quick, right? It's a couple days, you know, with kind of everything being kind of closed. It was like, yeah, I'll come back. Like, you keep winning. Like, you guys keep wanting me back. Like, sure. Like, whatever. It was great. The first time I did it, that I put in an application, cold call application, like, you know, anybody else would. And I was very thankful that I um, made it through the interview process and got on the show. And then the outcome of that was was positive and I won. So they asked me to come back. And that was the one only time that I've, that I've applied to, to that show. And it was, yeah, just like I had the ability to do it. You know, I had a couple of people also in the kitchen working with me. So I was able to step away and, and do those things. And, you know, you're talking about awards and accolades and, and success rates and things of that sort. And like that was literally instant effect when that happened, when, when that first show aired. And as we're watching the show, every time I made it through a round, I could see my like my phone just light up. Instagram followers, you know, messages, like, these things kind of going. As soon as it was like the cloche comes off and I won, it was like somebody dropped a bomb on our reservation book and we just booked up for like the next month and a half, like damn near instantly. It was insane. I'd never seen anything like that. So when I was asked to come back and do it again, I was like, yes, please. <laughs> let's let's play that game again. <laughs> it's surprising, but it's not surprising because I mean, more people watch TV than read articles or online magazines or publications or whatever. So it would make sense that there'd be more of a bump from doing a TV appearance than there would be from even being in, you know, an award um, that's in kind of print. But yeah, you don't really think about it either. For us too, it was, it was a big thing of like, I think a lot of people didn't know that we were there. And here we are in Little Dover, New Hampshire, kind of near us, you know, Portsmouth being kind of quote unquote, the epicenter of, you know, restaurants in this area. And all of a sudden like, wait a minute, there's this great restaurant over here in Dover. And everybody had that same idea at the same time. And that kind of like, it really allowed, it really showed people that we were there, which was big. Do you think you were so successful on that show because of your catering background? Like it does seem the people that do win those style of cooking competition shows, they have to have done something else within their cooking career, whether it was catering, private chefing, especially on Chopped, where something like that or Top Chef, like if you get somebody that's been a chef owner for like six, seven years, they don't seem to go as far in those. No. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, the people that are kind of more one-sided don't go very far, but I, I'm very thankful that I've got 
a very versatile background, whether it's catering, private chefing, or anything like that. But then also the, the design of our restaurant is that we we move and change our menu with ingredients that we don't necessarily even know are coming until they literally walk in the door. So, you know, the ability to adapt fast, the chopped method uh, really suited me. Like I was able to really assess quickly what I needed to do. Um, I will also, because of the fact that I, we have guests literally right in front of us, that I'm totally fine with other people in my space. I'm totally fine with cameras. I'm totally fine with, you know, interviews and being asked questions while I'm cooking, uh, like all of that stuff. It all kind of every piece of everything I'd done throughout my career aided in my success on that show. So like 2021, June, I think you guys opened the living room at Stages, which is like the lounge arm of the the restaurant there. You kind of touched on it earlier. What kind of gave you the idea to add that element to your already existing restaurant? It's funny, that space has been a lot of different things over the course of years. And the pandemic gave myself, as did others, a lot of opportunity to think about your concept and how to use it. And when I really thought about what we bring to people when they come into the kitchen, that being the idea of inviting guests into your home, you know, I thought about what is the room that you walk through before you get to the kitchen in your house, the living room? What makes people feel comfortable when they're out or, you know, somewhere or even in their own home? The living room, you know, they want, they relax, they, they, their shoulders, you know, come down a little bit. The formalness can be dropped, even though that we still provide a high level of service, but it feels so comfortable. And that's what we wanted to create. It just, it gave us the opportunity to stare at the space and kind of figure out what we wanted it to be. And instead of the normal, you know, tables and chairs things, we literally went with lounge couches and coffee tables and there's board games and things like all around, around there. Like I have bookshelves. I brought my entire cookbook collection in and put it there for people to, you know, browse and read and use. And some people have even borrowed, which is great. <laughs> so the, the room itself has been used in a multitude of ways by, by our guests, which is, which is really, really cool. It's, it, to me, it's like, it's a really neat thing to see how different a restaurant can really, really be other than just like come in, sit down, eat, leave. Do you think that style that aspect is kind of the new norm for restaurants. Like, I don't think we're far enough away from the pandemic to necessarily see different layouts just in case like another pandemic happens, but I know that's coming. But it seems like a lot of restaurants, either they add a, a bar area if they can, like you guys did, or you know, a dedicated kind of seating, more casual area. The second thing that they open, the next thing that they open is a dedicated bar space. Is that kind of the formula, the template now for restaurants kind of going forward, like, yeah, you can open your restaurant, but you also have to have some sort of more relaxed, casual offering, even if you are a high-end fine dining restaurant. Oh yeah. I, I definitely think that people were really shown the light with that. They need to do, be able to diversify their revenue streams. They really need to be able to diversify what they offer. And you can't just, you know, hang your head on your a Michelin starred restaurant, everybody's just going to come to you because you're that freaking cool. That you really need to have those. I mean, I have multiple friends that own restaurants that have not just their high end thing, but they, they, like you said, it's like they have a more casual something or other. I have a friend that had like a taco joint, had a ramen place, you know, and he's got his high end tasting counter, you know, it's like, and the, the more casual things are the ones that like you can open a couple of them. And that literally, like, that's where the money is. The high end thing is awesome because it gets you to, really create and show new things and feel comfortable in your own skin. But as far as the business side of running, you know, having restaurants, the more casual department is where that's where the money is, especially with, you know, like 
beverage and alcohol and things like that. It's like, we really saw during the pandemic that we need to do different things and we really need to branch out. And that's where a lot of these ideas I think came from. And I, you know, going forward, I think you're going to see more of that. I think you're going to see, you know, chefs with more high-end backgrounds do more casual entities. Stages has been open for over 10 years now, even with the little break from the pandemic. How long do you think it'll keep going? How long do you want it to go? Because there's some chefs that they're like, hey, I'm going to do this restaurant concept for a decade. And after a decade, I'm done. I'm going to do something else. And there's some that it kind of keeps going and it naturally gets to a point where for whatever reason, financials, leases, health, whatever, it just kind of trickles off. But like, how long do you want stages to keep going? What do you think kind of the next iteration of it will be if you do keep it going for years and years? Yeah, that, that is that is a great question. And it's such a hard one to answer. At first, I want to say it's like, I'd like it to be here forever. The reality of that is that I can't do this forever. The intensity of creativity that we put into what we do is a lot. And sometimes I think the fact that we've made it 11 years like blows my mind and I can't even believe it. It takes a certain set of energy to get to 10 years and it takes another set of energy to get to the next 10 years. Much like a lot of things, like I don't always put a, I try not to put a period at the end of the sentence. We're very lucky that that our lease runs year to year at the moment. We've already gone way past what our initial term was for, for our leases. And so that now that puts that choice in our hands versus having to like, you know, live out a lease uh, that's extended past, you know, potentially the life of the restaurant. So that every year, my brother and I literally ask ourselves that question is like, do we want to keep it going? And so far, the answer has been yes. And a big part of that, like in all honesty, is like, is my energy level going towards it? Do I think that one, can it still make money? Two, can I still create at the level that we are doing at least in order to move it forward? And as long as those answers are yes, then I will keep it open. When those two answers start becoming no or maybe, then we consider moving on from there. But at the moment, I have no plans on closing it anytime soon or hopefully not in the next decade. <laughs> Since you've opened, you know, others have adopted, replicated, copied, followed the path that you kind of laid out with New England cuisine and tasting menu, being a little bit more progressive and, and doing things in a untraditional manner too as well with the food. Does that make you proud to see that you kind of kind of trailblazed and paved this way for for other places? Or does it kind of still push you with your competitive nature to just outpace them just a little bit more year to year and just still be kind of at the top of the, I paved this path, you know, I was one of the early adopters, but like, I'm, I'm still one of the best at it too. For me, I mean, I'm definitely very, very proud of what has been accomplished and where we are and where I stand in this community. And it blows my mind that I could even be considered influential or meaningful to somebody else's career. Like that in itself... It puts me into that that block that I've looked at other people in my career as, and that's just like that's such a humbling thing to even to even conceptualize uh, in my mind. You know, to come out, initiate a concept, push forward a food style, push forward a menu concept and style and whatnot, and be brave enough to stay with it and keep it. And then you have others that want to do similar things. And to me, that that that's an incredible thing. You know, that other people captured their bravery to say, like, I'm going to do this too. And to latch on to a food style that hasn't been done. I mean, that to me is like that need, that niche was there. Somebody had to do it. And I'm grateful that I was that person to, to be able to do that. And yes, competitively, I will continue to push 
until I can't anymore. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, I, it is, I'm not going to lie. It's like, it's, it's very, it's nice to be on the top end of that. You know, it really is, you know, I'm not trying to hand off the torch or anything like that. I will absolutely welcome more people coming into this community doing, you know, similar or, you know, whatnot things than, than we are. I would love it. I'd love to see it. You know, the more of it, it just to be, it's like great food, good community, awesome times. You're coming up on a milestone yourself too with almost three years. Uh, it'll be three years in January uh, sobriety. So, you know, we've had a couple people on more and more people within the industry are finding kind of a similar path with becoming sober. We've had, you know, a dedicated person on who his whole thing is working in restaurants uh, and helping people get sober and, and being a counselor and an avenue for communication or all that stuff with Ben friends and Andy, who I think actually now moved out to Portland, uh, kind of Oregon area. But with all that, you know, what led you on that journey? How has it been for you so far? How has it been so far? It's been incredible. It's been absolutely the, the shy of marrying my, my wife has been my best decision ever in my life. Um, and I think a lot of ways you could say that it saved my life. My wife was the catalyst for that. Growing up in the restaurant industry, I mean, it's just like drinking and alcohol and parties and everything else is just, it's woven through that culture so much. And it's really hard to kind of put it into, you know, short form words as to what that has done to the industry, what that has done to our profession, what that has done to cooks, front of the house, anybody, what that does as far as limiting your potential, your mindset, changing your path your choices, everything. It's just, it's insane what that does to us. For me, just some, something needed to change. And I had tried a couple of times on my own to say like, okay, I, I need to stop drinking. I need to stop doing this. And it would work for a couple of days. And that's about as far as that that would be. And it just like, I couldn't do it on my own. And my wife had sent something to to that degree. She's like, we need to get you help in order to get you to where you need to be. And there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And I think that this is a big part of that. The big part of like the, the bravery of understanding your situation, acknowledging that you need assistance and help in one way, shape or form, and then actually acting upon that. Knowing that like I tried several times by myself and was not successful. But we look back at the the competition thing we were talking about earlier, as far as, you know, when you try and you fail, I'm not, I'm not afraid to fail, but you learn something every time you do fail. What I learned was, A, I wanted the outcome. B, I couldn't do it on my own. And so I started an in-home recovery program, which was a year long of duration. And it was a multitude of, you know, various counselors and nurses and whatnot coming to my house to... We have conversations, like they check your blood pressure, you have, you know, piss tests. It's like, it's, it's, it's the whole thing. It's literally everything that you would go through if you were in a facility, except it's in your home and it's built for the people that can't just more or less like stop life and go somewhere else. And so that that fit for me because I could continue on with work, business, kids, and, but also work on this at the same time. Enter the idea that I have a great ability to multitask. That really helped. Um, and for me, it was the most life-changing experience ever. And I would love to put it in a bottle and hand it to somebody else. And it's really difficult to describe like what that feels like. 
to what that goes through. Like it's an experience of like somebody, I just want somebody else to feel it. I really want somebody else to know what this is like and to know that like, not only like, I want to give somebody the support and you want to show them that they can do it. You know, you can do it. And whatever that looks like for you, go for it. And some people can enjoy, you know, alcohol responsibly or just never really got into it and good for them. And then some of us were not those people. Some of us, you know, it was excess or like more, more. And I think one of the things of like a cook's mentality that when you look at the rush of a kitchen, it's like, oh, we were that busy, you know, tonight it's like, excellent. Let's get busier. Let's get even busier. We can handle that. And then you have this, this kind of this warrior slash, like, you know, pain mentality of like, you know, give it to me. Like, like I can handle, I can handle the whole thing. You know, look, look at, look what I can do. And you apply that to drugs or, you know, or drinking or worse and look what it does to you. And it's not, the answer is nothing good. So to be able to go through that program, finish that program and not in any way, shape or form, I can confidently say I have, I don't give two shits about drinking. Like I don't care about it. I really don't. You could put a bottle of whatever you want in front of me and I, it's a liquid. Like I don't care. I'm not going to drink it. I don't feel a craving to, you know, to drink it. I don't want to drink it. I can be in a bar and not want anything like totally fine. And not to ever say that it's like you're cured because you know, you're not, it is a constant front burner issue of you are always aware of it and you are always aware of what it, what it can do to you and what it did do to you. Yeah. That was huge. That was just like, that was gigantic for me. So almost three years. And I have some other friends. You you mentioned Brian Baxter earlier, same thing. He's, he's a sober uh, friend of mine, Uh, Nick Elmy at um, Laurel in, in Philadelphia. He's a sober friend. You know, it's like these guys have made major changes in their lives and they're inspirations. You know, they're, they're not only inspirations, they're, they're great friends. And um, it's really cool that we can bond over that and we empower each other because of those, those, those kinds of things. And it's awesome. And it's also great to see other people making those choices as well. Small form, big form, whatever it is. Like, it's awesome to see the industry start to, to kind of turn. As we mentioned in kind of Dover, Portsmouth area, you know, in that restaurant scene, you guys opened back in 2012. So it's uh, 11 years, be 12 years next year. But with that length of time in the restaurant scene in New Hampshire and Portsmouth area, how has it changed? What do you think still needs to change? Where do you think it's headed? I've definitely seen a lot, you know, a lot of restaurants come and go. What I'm hoping to see is the life of the smaller restaurant. I think that the pandemic showed us that the gigantic restaurants aren't necessarily a viable thing. I think on paper, they look like they're going to make you tons and tons of money. What is more manageable from a restaurant standpoint, I think, are the, the smaller entities. I really hope that we see that. I think that they could speak to the area, the culture, the, the community more so. And I guess that's, you know, selfishly, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a more exciting restaurant scene, more diversity in, in cuisines come through here. I think that's what I'd like to see. Every so often you see, you know, different things here and there pop up. But I mean, like, I'd really like to see a great diversity of solidly executed food and maybe some more high-end places would be awesome. But sometimes I really just want good casual food done well. Do you think kind of the Portsmouth area can be an avenue where Boston wasn't the right fit for you and, and what you wanted to do? It's a big city. It's expensive. If you open a concept in Boston, it has to, all the I's have to be dot, all the T's have to be crossed. Like you have no leeway for, well, if this doesn't work, we can kind of figure out a different way to kind of make it work. Like same way in Chicago, New York, like you open a restaurant, it's either on point or it's closed within a year. Like that's just the way it goes there. So 
you know, and we kind of have that a little bit of that here. It's a little bit more forgiving still, but with that, can Portsmouth, that Portsmouth area be an avenue for people to test out concepts that maybe aren't fully fleshed out or, or leave the Boston area, but still be close enough where you can still get some of those people from Boston, those dedicated food people and foodies to come and experience your restaurant. Cause it's not super far away from Boston, but then you get some relief from the high cost of rent and leases and lease terms and all that kind of stuff. Yes and no. Um, you kind of hit the point that I was going to make as far as like lease terms and rents that in Portsmouth specifically, that those lease terms are getting more ridiculous and rent and rents are getting higher. As taxes get reassessed, they are just going up and up and up and up and people's rents are going higher and higher, which puts the footprint. And it's such a Portsmouth, it's a very condensed, weird footprint. The building shapes, the footprint shapes are not always conducive to restaurants and people will try to shoehorn a restaurant concept into those and then wonder why they failed or aren't doing what the numbers that they expect to, you know, years down the line. So it's kind of both. I mean, you can come out of Boston where it's, you know, not as expensive in perspective and in, it's not any more forgiving. You kind of have to go outside of an area like that to do that. You know, some of the smaller, the smaller towns, like I love Dover. Like I'd really like to explore more of Dover and when, what it has to offer, you know, restaurant scene wise, you know, you're seeing, um, you know, a friend of mine has a, a restaurant up in um, Biddeford, Maine, you know, and the, the first thing you think is like, wait, Biddeford, like, where's that? You know, like the, it's another year, like you're seeing these, these tiny little restaurant orbs, you know, you just kind of pop up here and there. And I think what, what, what we're showing is that like, you know, we keep saying Portsmouth or Boston is like, but you know, look at places like Somerville or coming just outside of Boston, right? It's like when you come outside that 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 little epicenter, then you're starting to able to be able to achieve the things that you're mentioned. You can flex the concept a little more. Your taxes aren't as high. The footprints aren't as obscure. Your rents aren't as high, and you're able to to do things. And I think a lot of times, like the people that are in those communities are the ones that travel to Boston or to Portsmouth or whatever to to go get good food because that's where they've. That's where they've always gone. That's where they think it has to be. But what we're teaching people and showing people is that you step outside into these other neighborhoods like Dover and Biddeford in Somerville and whatnot, and you can do exceptional food at achievable costs to the guests. Like we don't have to have a $300 tasting menu where we are because our overall costs aren't as high. You go to, you go to Boston, right? And you take that same, you know, 1200 square foot restaurant that we have here. And I'm going to have to damn near triple my prices on you. And I'm not giving you anything more in your experience. I'm literally giving you the same experience that you would get now, but I'm going to charge you a hell of a lot more for it. What's next for you professionally? Any other restaurant concepts you might open one day, possibly, you know, open something in Kentucky since, you know, you got some affinity for that area. Like what, what's next? I don't know. I mean, I've always got my eyes open and, you know, my pen is always moving as far as like, you know, what we're, what we're getting into. And I've got a list of different ideas, none of which, you know, I can kind of throw out there publicly just yet, but like, Kentucky, man, I was like, wow, like, you don't even know how many times somebody in my family is like, you should come to Louisville, you should come to Louisville, open a place there. Like, you know, my my sister lives down in um, in Delaware, and everybody's like, oh, you should come down here and open a place. It's like, man, I live up here, knock that off. So, but we we do have something that, that we're really excited about, actually, at stages that kind of go back to a part of my career is, that is you know, the staging, and that I want to be able to create, or we are creating a program more or less called staging at stages that kind of breaks that norm uh, a little bit. And we want to give um, cooks 
and sort of up and coming cooks, not only the opportunity to work with us in the kitchen and learn, but with the idea of developing a menu with me that we will put out to the public, we will execute it. And the profits from that will go to paying the stage. So we're kind of breaking the mold um, a bit. And not only do we want to give them the opportunity of being in a great restaurant, but also to kind of what I was saying before is like the nice thing about stages is that our world does slow down. We are able to ask those questions. We are able to take that time and really explore what somebody is is looking to learn in their career or in, in cooking or anything. They can really see a different level of uh, hospitality and cooking. And it's at a slower pace, which is great. Um, and it enables them to really, really take the time and learn and excel uh, in, in our comfortable environment. And we're really excited to be able to roll that program out quite soon. That sounds awesome. Like that's kind of one of the big things, you know, we've had a decent amount of people on that have come through the pop-up scene and it's always one of the hardest parts about doing a pop-up or anything is just finding a usable space. And like, it's always a different space. It's a different layout. You, you wind up doing so much prep work offsite. And like, even with just doing that for somebody who's staging, having the consistency of the space alone so they can focus on menu development and dish development and, and all that stuff. And technical skills is just probably such a relief for them to only have to be able to focus on those things instead of like, I want to do something, but where am I going to do it? When's the next time I'm going to be able to do it kind of thing. That's pretty awesome. That's an awesome program. And we really want to give the the people that exactly just the opportunity to, to focus on how to build a menu, how to build a tasting menu, how to build flavors, how to layer flavors properly, how to not just create that dish, but how to express that idea to a guest, how to share that with a guest. And then with us that you, because we have our guests right there in the kitchen, you can see the instant reaction. It's not even about words. It's their reaction when they, when they take a bite of the plate that, that you just made. So we can see that. And all, all of that goes into how we construct our menus and dishes. And we want to give that experience to, to up and coming cooks. And so that when, you know, down the line or whatnot, that they're thinking about a pop-up or their own thing or like that, they bring all of that information into their now repertoire and their skill set. Uh, going forward. And so that we're really able to help the industry, help up and coming cooks, help growing and really help reshape and redefine the level of cooking that's out there. Next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, Chef Tim McLean, who's the uh, executive chef at Mita's in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you could go back to one restaurant you previously worked at, which would it be and why? Oh, good one. It would be Trio in Evanston. That, that by all means was the experience that changed, I think, my path. I think the way that Grant was in the kitchen, the collaborativeness of the menu concepts, um, how that whole thing worked, the service of the chefs in the kitchen, and the level of creativity. I like. I I love that. I would. I'd like. I would go back to that. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Um, something that I love to ask other people was asked of me one time and man, did it stop me in my tracks is that throughout your career, you study and work hard to become a chef. Once you've achieved that, what is your exit strategy? You aren't going to retire on the line. How are you getting out? That was something that was just like mind boggling because you try so hard to become the best chef you can possibly become, but you never think past that. That's my, my question. What's your exit strategy? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could have one restaurant move to your town, Dover, which would it be and why? I would go with Smith 
out of Chicago, John Shields restaurant. I love the food concept. I love the food style. And I think that if they took what they do there and brought it to the bounty of food that we have here, it would be an incredible addition. Last set of questions for you. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Looking back on your career, who would you say is the biggest influence? I have to name two people. One's a cook, one's not. The cook is definitely Grant Atkins. That he opened my my mind to layering flavor and simplicity of flavor. And I think he opened my mind to what a restaurant actually can do versus just what it has been. The other non-cook is my wife. She has given me the support and place, safe place to confidently create what I do today. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Cast iron pan. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own? Person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled, you guys aren't open, they reach out to you, hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Uh, in Biddeford, Maine, Elda. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you have not been to, you still want to visit, place you have not eaten at, but you still want to dine at one day. So a place I'd like to visit, we were actually talking about trying to uh, make a trip to this in the next few years, is uh, up in Northern Europe, going you know Northern British Isles and then going North, Norway, Sweden, things of that sort. I have a friend that works in the Faroe Islands. We'd love to go out there, explore that area. So that's a, a definite bucket list travel destination. Uh, restaurant, there's a place in Belgium called Lair du Temps. Sanghoon de Jambre is the chef there. It's a two Michelin restaurant. And he has an incredible concept combining French background with Japanese style things. And it's just like, to me, it's, it's very like, it's a lot like what we do. But I really like, and it's like it's situated on a farm. So I think that that's the one thing that I'm missing is I don't have a farm, but I'd love to go there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Something that comes to mind is actually, and I'm sure many people have experienced something very similar to this, is being on a line, super busy, and the oven door falls off. One of the oven doors just completely falls off. Everything hinges gone. See you later. And well, you can't stop the ship. You have to keep cooking. So with one leg and a knee, you keep the oven door closed while you turn around to the past and plate things. You turn around and continue cooking, you know, on your on the pans or whatnot, trying to keep the oven door as closed as possible. When you can't do it, you tap your uh, your friend, the, the, the guy next to you on the line, and they move over. And to collectively, you've got two to three people's knees keeping an oven door closed for the, for the entire night. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, you know, anything that's kind of unhealthy, but you know, you just can't help yourself. I like Milky Way bars, man. <laughs> I can eat a box of those things. <laughs> Drinks, not really. I just, I drink a ton of water. I think it's my main thing. I, you know, after putting alcohol down, you know, I don't have any, any things like that. I like ginger beer. It's good. But yeah, I just I drink a lot of water. What is one cookbook you think everyone should own, whether they're a professional chef, aspiring chef, just an at-home cook? The French Laundry. It is one of the most iconic books out there and changed the game for not only cookbooks, the way they were written, put together, produced, but also I think uh, iconic in the way that it changed how people cooked. Favorite dish, favorite thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career, you can almost point to this as like your aha moment. You knew you could be a professional chef one day. This was the dish that like, you're like, yeah, I can do this. I don't necessarily know if I have one that, that said like, okay, I can do this, but I did have one and we still have it on the menu that sits in turn. It, it kind of changed my, 
my, I guess my vision towards things in terms of we, so we have this aerated brie dish on the menu. It has ginger and we, we drip some warm honey into it. Um, and then we serve it with these dried mushroom madeleines that we bake to order um, nice and warm. And for me, like we, we created that dish, you know, fun with cheese. It was excellent texture, tasted good, you know, checked all the boxes. And then when we put it in front of our guests, it was just like, they didn't know what to do with it. And I mean that in a good way. Like they were just like, what in the world is going on? And to me, that was how a signature item gets developed. That you put forth a good dish. You can never create a classic going into it. You can never create a classic or or a, a signature dish on purpose. It's all done by your guests. And that really showed that to me. Um, and that dish has been on our menu for three, almost four years. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you? Uh, if you weren't, is there anybody else who's on TV, culinary personality, a Julia Child, uh, Jacques Pepin, somebody that you kind of gravitated towards or followed when you were coming up through your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, first off, it's like I love Anthony Bourdain. The man is the patron saint of the restaurant industry. For me, I think growing up, like I always saw a lot of Julia Child. Mother always had like, you know, all her books and everything. And we always said, you know, Jacques and Julie on PBS and and whatnot growing up. And I remember this very specific episode. It actually had the two of them on at one time. And um, so it's Julia Child's show. Jacques Pepin is there and he's trimming a a full tenderloin with a with a paring knife. And then he gets to the 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 head of it where it'd be like the Chateaubriand. And so he carves that off. And as he's doing it, he's literally just, you know, picking the the tenderloin up. And, you know, any cooks would be like, and you pick it up, you kind of slap it back down on your cutting board and you, you know, trim the silver skin, slap it the other way. And he's like, so now I'm at, so he's doing this on, you know, on screen and he gets in the Chateaubriand and like, he's talking about, you know, how to trust the thing. And, oh, Martha Stewart is also on this, this episode, which was, this is the funniest part was her face, her reaction when he is just flopping that the tenderloin back and forth and just, you know, slinging through it with a paring knife. And then like, they're going to tenderize, you know, with a meat mallet, the, 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 the Chateaubriand and Julia Child comes from damn near off screen with this like saute pan. She's like, and I just like to whack it. And she's just like cracks the the tenderloin right off the top of the head. And it was like the, the reaction of uh, Martha Stewart was priceless <laughs> for anybody that's a Martha Stewart fan. Like I am not, I think I'm sure she's, you know, great and everything, but culinary, I'm like, no, you know, but uh, to see those two who link so well and have grown up in the same, you know, French cooking world meet with um, uh, Martha Stewart was just, it was, it was hilarious. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. All those things. You can find me on Instagram at Evan Hennessy. Uh, we have at the living room NH for the living room. We do have Facebook pages. Um, definitely more active on Instagram. Our uh, websites, uh, stages-dining.com. Come visit us there. You can see what we're up to, menu changes and such. And the living room NH.com. And come visit us in the living room. Hang out, chill, play a game, read a book, grab some beautiful cocktails, mocktails. We have an incredible mocktail program. I'm very proud of it. And I look forward to seeing all you guys there. Restaurants open Wednesday through Saturday? Thursday through Saturday at the moment. The living room is at five o'clock. And then we have seatings at 530 and eight o'clock in the kitchen. I follow you on Instagram, obviously, and because uh, we connected there, but different photos and everything. The food looks amazing. So I can't wait to to try it. And, you know, we still have family or I have family uh, in the Boston area. My sister's still in Cape Cod. So We'll be out there at some point in the upcoming months for a visit uh, to see all those people. So we'll be trying to snake our way up to 
the New Hampshire area and uh, stop in and, and have dinner, trying some delicious food and having a great experience. Awesome, man. We're, we're excited to have you. And thank you for having me on the, on the show. It was a great conversation. Big thanks again to Evan for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to share his story, how he wound up where he is, all the life stuff that he's encountered along the way, getting sober and how all that materialized and everything for him and future plans for the restaurant, you know, kind of where they're headed, the challenges that they face. So again, you can follow him on Instagram. It's at Evan Hennessy is his handle. And then you can also follow the restaurant. Just follow the lounge account. It's at the living room and H. And that'll kind of incorporate all of the information from stages too, as well. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at Spoon Mob on all other social media, but mainly we use Instagram. You can check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, whatever. We're on all of them, even the smaller ones. There's one for some reason you can't find us on. Shoot us an email, shoot us an Instagram message, let us know email is spoonmob at yahoo.com but we'll take a look at it but everything should be good to go on whatever platform that you can find us on that you prefer to use you can also subscribe to the youtube channel episodes hit there a week after they hit all the podcast apps but that is it for this week appreciate everybody who's been listening appreciate everybody who uh, has been helping spread the word through word of mouth or going to establishments that we featured on the podcast too as well reservations for special events whatever it is Appreciate you guys supporting all the places that we've been able to feature so far. More cool stuff on the way, but as always, if you're new, welcome. Hopefully you've been enjoying uh, the past few episodes. If you've been here for a long time or since the beginning, thank you, as always, for your continued support and listenership and consuming the podcast, listening to the podcast. Every week, uh, we've been putting them out pretty much. We miss a week here or there, but for the most part, we do 50-some episodes a year. That's kind of always been the target uh, that might change in the future, but you know, we average about 50 episodes a year out of the 52 weeks in a year. So pretty much something you can set your watch to always try and, you know, come up with guests that are doing something unique or passionate about something or somebody that we're a big fan of or what have you. So been awesome to connect with everybody so far, looking forward to more uh, episodes and additional guests and all that stuff. So Thank you as always, and we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.